Okay, well, welcome everyone. This is episode 19 of Spurb Serbs, and it is an episode unlike any other episode we've ever done because it's on an herb I have no idea about, and it is going to be an interesting one. Today, we're going to be talking about Cleom Arabica. And, uh, well, without further ado, let's get into it. So, uh, if you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board Continuing Education Units and National Certification Council on Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine Professional Development Activities at a reasonable cost. Please check them out at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. That's integrativemedicinecouncil.org, and you can get lots of CUs for low cost. I have also written a couple of books, Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine, and Playing the Game, a Step-by-Step Guide to Accepting Insurance as an Acupuncturist. If you're interested in either of these books, they are available at the shop on www.spurbsherbs.com. That's Spurbs Herbs, S-P-E-R-B-S-H-E-R-B-S.com. I have to spell herbs. I used to teach in Australia, and every time I, I did the silent H, some, one of my, my cheeky uh, students would, would uh, raise her hand and say, excuse me, sir, do you mean herbs? And I'd always go, no, I mean herbs. So yes, we do not pronounce the H here, but uh, lots of uh, English speakers do. So spurbsherbs.com. All right. So today's podcast, wow. Did I bite off one heck of a podcast today? This is a big one. I started this podcast so I can continue my journey into the world of herbs, deepen my knowledge of Chinese herbs, learn about herbs of the world, especially those that I was not particularly familiar with, and bring my listeners along on the hopefully entertaining and educational journey. And that's been my goal for this, for this podcast. So I wanted to learn about popular herbs, that I may not be an expert in, as well as more obscure herbs. Well, today's herb is really obscure. It's about as obscure as it gets. My, my, my first thought was, when I looked at this herb and started doing some, some investigations, like, how the heck did I even find this herb? As my preliminary research was not pulling up much at all. I'm like, where did I find this? The source was one paragraph in a, in a pretty obscure book that I found looking for herbs on, on the internet. It was called The Handbook of Arabian Medicinal Herbs by Letting, and it was written in 1998. It's a little dated. It's not very thorough. There's a small little paragraph, most of which is more about um, some historical story about Cleomar Arabica rather than anything specific about the herb. So that's what I'm going with. That's how I found out about it. So it is interesting. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting journey today as we get into this herb, but the herb does have medicinal properties and we can learn from that. So let's start today's journey with our little something different. So this is an Arabic herb. So I thought for a little something different, we would talk about Arab herbal traditions. But before we do that, let's first talk about the difference between Arabic and Persian. This is something that's always um, ping-ponged in my mind. I've had Persian friends in the, in the past, and they were very adamant they were not Arabic. And uh, it just kind of stuck with me, and I, I wanted to dive into that a little bit here for something a little bit different. So as we delve into this difference, we will find that there will be quite a large difference between herbal traditions. Since the herb we are talking about today grows primarily in Northern Africa, we are really are talking about Arabic herbology as opposed to Persian herbology, and we'll see why that is the case right now. So Arabs and Persians are not the same. There are lots, when I put that in, there are lots of websites that try to distinguish between the two. Some are very political. Uh, some try to be intellectual and historic. Some are mostly language differences, but most offer the Persian perspective. I think mostly because in, in modern, especially in modern America, 
we, we lump them all together under the rubric of Arabic. And uh, the Persians are not happy with that because they, have, they are a completely different culture, a completely different people. And so uh, they don't like being lumped in with someone they're not. It's not, nothing wrong with Arabs. It's just that's not the Persians. So a lot of the books, a lot of the websites are from a Persian perspective. So basically, the Arabs are from North Africa and Western Asia and were tribal and nomadic uh, in their origin, uh, uh, originally. Bedouin is another term used for these people. So if you see Bedouins, that, that means Arabs. And they speak the Afro-Asiatic Arabic language. So the A Arabic language actually comes from Africa and Asia. So Afro-Asiatic language. So very different from our language, which stems off of the Indo-European uh, branches of the tree, and we're going to see it's very different from Persia as well. So that's Arabic language. Persians are generally from Iran, and Persian and Iranian are practically synonymous. So saying Persian, saying Iranian is fine. Persian is a little bit larger than just Iran because parts of Pakistan, Afghanistan, and even Turkey are considered Persian based in their traditions and the language that they use. So it's a little bit more than India. In the past, the Persian Empire is considered one of the greatest empires in the world. And, you know, we, there's a lot of greatest emperors, empires in the world. You know, the Roman Empire is considered one of those. Um, at, at one point, the you know, Chinese, uh, especially in their geography, definitely considered one of the, the greatest empires in the world. And at one point, the Persian Empire was that. If you're not familiar with this, the, the movie that I always come back to is 300, um, which is about the Greeks trying to, uh, to uh, keep at bay the Persian in, in intrusion, invasion into Greece. And uh, so, yes, the, the uh, big bads in 300 were actually the Persian uh, army coming to play. We talked, I, I said I mentioned Roman, but the Greeks were also with Hannibal and all that. So very interesting. Lots of empires have come and gone. And the Persian Empire was one of the longer lasting ones, honestly. It was a very strong empire. They speak Farsi, also called Persian. So if you hear either of those words as a language, then they're talking about the same thing. And Farsi, Farsi Persian is Indo-European language, like us, where Indo-European English is considered the uh, Indo-European branch, though I think our branch is quite a far way off, uh, away from the Persian branch of the Indo-European languages. Their cultures and traditions are quite distinct from Arabic cultures and traditions as well, so they do not have a lot of overlap in the culture and traditions. While Arabic and Farsi are different languages, Farsi adopted the Arabic alphabet with some exceptions. They have a few extra letters in it, as I understand. Uh, they're similar, though. It has been described as French versus English. English. English speakers may recognize a few words of French and vice versa, but the specifics of the conversation will be lost. I think another way might be, you know, Spanish and Portuguese. You know, they're, they're similar, uh, just, a, you know, just enough so that you can kind of, you know, not even get the gist of a conversation, but get a couple words from a conversation. So, And both Arabia and Persia Iran are Islamic. And this is where I think a lot of the confusion kind of comes in and uh, in, in saying that, well, they're, they're Islamic, so therefore they're the same culture, but they're not. While having distinct cultures and traditions, the Arabs did conquer Persia for quite a while bringing the Islamic religion and mixing cultures with them. And that's when they actually adopted the, the Arabic uh, alphabet was when they were in that, in that uh, when they were being conquered by the Arabs. So that is uh, why there may be some confusion, but generally they're very distinct. Iran is, and, and even under is the, the rubric of is, is Islam, Muslim religion, uh, they're very different. Iran is generally Shiite. Again, there's lots of different subgroups, so it's it's hard. I think the number I, I saw was about 54%, 60% of Iran is Shiite. While the Arab world is entirely Sunni in, in their Islamic beliefs. So let's talk about what those mean. So the Shiites, which only make up about 10% of all Muslims. So the Shiites are a very small minority, but... Of a large major majority in Iran. 
believe the rulers and imams should be from the bloodline derived from the Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, Ali Talib. Again, apologize for any of my pronunciation if it's, if it's off. So the Shiites basically say that this should be uh, the, the people in charge, the, the imams and the rulers of Islam should be sort of a hereditary distinction based on this bloodline that is close to Muhammad's bloodline. And that's, that, those are the Shiites. The Sunni, however, actually believe any pious individual could be elected to a leadership role by community consensus. So they're, the, they're actually, in, in a lot of ways, more egalitarian, I think, at least on the surface to the Shiites. But, of course, both the Shiites and the Sunni have, have relatively liberal sects and, and, and quite conservative sects in, in each of those. I'm using the words S-E-C-T, sects, uh, in there uh, to, you know, to describe different groupings within these major uh, uh, ideas. In the context of today's conversation, given the longer history of geographic nearness, Persian medicine would have historically had more influence on Chinese herbology, at least theoretically. However, as a Chinese herbologist, that's me, and given the Chinese penchant for thinking and writing as if they are the center of the world, the word for China is actually center, uh, we are often trained as if there is Chinese herbology, and then there is the rest of the world. And so that's, that's often how we're trained. These are Chinese herbs. In fact, it's interesting. Some herbs have the, uh, words in there that mean barbarian, which means it's from outside of China. So often this sort of centralized you know, version of herbology pits us against European herbalists and their traditions, and with a smattering of uh, Native American herbal traditions, at least in America, I think that's, that's fairly prominent in American herbal tradition, uh, not necessarily in other parts of the world. Of course, in other parts of the world, they're going to have their own local traditions. You know, there's European uh, or Western herbology, uh, which is there, and of course, wherever else you are, there's going to be other forms of herbology. Of course, there have been many distinct herbal traditions in the world. I think I, I think medicine is is very starts very local, and so we I think every locality of a long term peoples will have their own medical traditions, which often include herb, herbal traditions as well, and and probably spiritual and and uh, faith based and 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 uh, ritualistic type uh, medicinal. Uh, approaches to things. Shamanistic is uh, shamanistic medicine is is often the rubric we use for that sort of overarching sort of approach, and it is usually like a first step in how we do that. And even if we look at Greek medicine, which is you know supposedly how Western medicine was derived, we see in Greek medicine that it had a lot of of I'm going to say spiritualistic overtones. You were you were sick because you pissed off one of the Greek gods, and therefore you need to make amends to the god by whatever means, offerings or work or whatever it is, um, and that's how you did it. And that's where Hippocrates comes in, which we're going to mention in a few minutes. Hippocrates comes in, he was one of the first to say, no, 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 no. It's not supernatural is not the reason why you're sick. It, there are natural reasons for why you're sick, and we can use natural means to get you well. And that was part of the reason why Hippocrates is considered, at least in the West, the father of modern medicine. Right, so many Chinese herbs would not exist without their, this is an example, many Chinese herbs would not exist without their Indian neighbors, Ayurvedic and Buddhist contributions. There's a lot of herbs in, in Chinese herbal uh, theory that are actually from India. There's abundant evidence of trade happening between ancient Greece and China, meaning there was an exchange of herbal traditions, though not as well documented specifically. They'll talk about spices, they'll talk about other things that may have been traded, even technology sometimes, but not necessarily herbs. But again, if we go back to Hippocrates and we look at what Hippocrates did to treat disease, it would be recognizable by any Chinese practitioner. The only thing that was really missing was acupuncture. They did cupping, they did meditation, they did massage, they did all kinds of um, herbs, they did all kinds of stuff that we do as, as Chinese practitioners, except for maybe the acupuncture, at least not well documented if they did do that. 
And as it stands to reason, there would be a lot of exchange between Persian and Arab traditions in Chinese traditions. Again, not super well documented. Uh, there's been you know, a lot of uh, political reasons for that. There's been a lot of war reasons for that. There's cultural reasons for that. Not incredibly well documented, but I would be really shocked if there was not exchanges of ideas between Chinese medicine and Persian medicine and Arab medicine. So what, so what are these traditions, these Arab traditions that we're actually talking about? And we're going to talk about Arab traditions here. So according to one paper by Saad and his team in 2005, we can trace Arab herbalism back 60,000 years to a burial site in a cave with eight species of modern, of, of medicinal pollen. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, yes, I'm sure they were doing herbs, and there are similar sort of discoveries in, in Chinese history, and I haven't looked into Greek history, I'm sure there's something along those lines, where we can infer that there was medical traditions and herbal traditions, but they weren't documented. We don't have any other evidence other than this sort of inferral evidence. And again, like I said, we see that in Chinese medicine as well, where we have tombs that go back 10,000 years and we see herbal components. So. Uh, another team, in, in Nas and et al., in 2017, uh, paper says evidence dates to the Sumerian civilizations in Iraq, um, which go to 3000 to 1970 BCE. And so that is uh, kind of very much in line with sort of what we have in, in China as well, the, that time frame. And I think that's probably a more pertinent time frame, not that I'm dismissing. Uh, Arab herbalism 60,000 years ago. I think there was something. I'm just not sure it was well uh, established or well codified. And if it is, we don't have any evidence to that. So, it, you know, I don't know. Saad and his team continues to describe three phases in the development of Arab medicine. The first phase was the period of translation. So one of the things we have to, to remember here is that Islam came, started to, you know, came on the scene around the 7th century CE. And so we start to see uh, the Arab nations sort of coming together around Islam in that period of time. So it is, you know, speaking on the, on the world, you know, we're talking about China where we have documentation going back, you know, give or take a thousand years CE. We have Greece documentation going back 600, 700 um, BC. Both of those are BC, sorry, before the common era. And so, you know, we have these these long periods of time. And then we have this Arab medicine, and they're going to talk about right now, the first phase was the period of translation of Greek scientific and philosophical works into Arabic, starting in the 9th century CE. So that seems quite late in this, this whole scenario, but it's actually fairly early post-Islam's found, founding. So that's part of the reason why it, it's a little bit later there. So 9th century CE is when we start to see the first phase of Greek uh, and, and, and Roman medicine entering Arab culture and Arab medicine translates in translations happening there. Um, after the first period of translation, when the chief works of Galen and Hippocrates were made available in Arabic. So again, I've already mentioned Hippocrates is sort of the father of modern medicine. Galen is this whole other, he, he, he uh, just, I'm, I'm almost going to say medicine god in, in Western medicine. He was about 2nd century CE and really important. He wrote a lot of super important foundational works on medicine that were actually used in Europe in the West right up until Renaissance in you know, the 1500s, 1600s. And so um, for over a thousand, well over a thousand years, Galen was the absolute foundation of modern medicine. And I would, I would almost posit to say that he was probably more important to modern medicine than, than Hippocrates was. At least Galen embraced the scientific method. He, he was absolutely 100% flawed in how he applied it, but philosophically he embraced the scientific method. So between Galen and Hippocrates, you have like the two greats of early modern medicine and Western medicine. And so um, that is that first period of translation. Galen, Hippocrates, made available in Arabic, translated into Arabic. Now, and because of that, hospitals and medical schools flourished, as did Arab medicine. So Arab medicine took that and started 
growing on its own. And this is the second phase of Arab medicine. So on the foundations of Galen and Hippocrates, Arab, Arab medicine, Arabic medicine grew from there, which is very interesting because in the West at this point, we are in the dark ages and there is no growing from Galen and Hippocrates. When I teach this to my class, I would always say, well, you know, was Galen correct? And, and the response was, of course it was. Galen did it. Galen was, was kind of the first uh, anatomist. He was the first one to do dissections and, and, and write about them. And his works were very widely spread. And so they said, well, why don't we do any, any, uh, any cadaver work today? You know, say that in 1000 CE. And people would shrug and go, why? Galen did it. You know, we can't, we're not as good as Galen. We're nowhere near as good as Galen. We're not going to improve upon what Galen did. Galen did it. He was the best. We're going to just follow what he said. And that's basically what happened for over a thousand years in the West. But Arab medicine didn't have that constraint of the dark ages of, of, of the, the Christianity and, and its involvement in the dark ages and was able to kind of go from there and spread its, it, you know, and spread its wings a little bit as Arab medicine, which happened at this point in time in the second phase. The third phase of Arab medicine, Arab medicine started in the 12th century when European scholars interested in science and philosophy came to appreciate how much they had to learn from the Arabs and set about studying Arab works in these disciplines and translating the chief of them into Latin. So there we go. We have now we went from Greek and, and early Roman into Arab, Arab expanding on its own, and now Arab is starting to be translated back into Latin, which is now the scholarly language in the West, and a lot of their information is now being used in, in, in the West because it is of a high caliber. The most outstanding writer on medicine in Arabic was the 11th century Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, as he is called in the West. And I gotta say, I'm not super familiar with Avicenna. I've seen his name. I know he's definitely big uh, in that, but I don't know what his contributions were or weren't. I wish I did. I'm gonna look it up after this because I'm, I'm excited to learn about that. So those are the three phases of Arab medicine, uh, at least historically. As most countries and, uh, and cultures, as modern medicine has developed, Traditional herbal medicine has continued to be practiced. We absolutely, you know, do traditional herbal medicine or non-traditional, at least we do herbal medicine in the West and have um, for the entirety of modern medicine, currently cultural beliefs and practices often lead to self-care or home remedies in rural areas and consultations with traditional healers. And in, in the United States, you know, you really, if you want to look at when modern medicine started its escalation, it wasn't until the, the early 1900s, like I think 1920s is when the, the Flexner report or Flexner report came out. And that's the one that really kind of put, you know, really put homeopathy. Homeopathy was the dominant medicine in the United States up to that point, pretty much. And that put homeopathy on its, its uh, hind legs, uh, herbalism, all that. And that's when the medical schools kind of became prominent and, and modern medicine really started to happen in, in America, at least. The Flexner Report was from, uh, it was an American report. And so, um, but even with all that, so up until 1920, these were, we definitely used, you know, traditional methods and traditional healing. After that, of course, it didn't go away. It just morphed into something a little bit different. It morphed into complementary and alternative medicine rather than medicine. Uh, and so, but it, it never went away. It may have waned a little, little bit, and it may have periods of waxing and waning throughout uh, the history since then. But it currently is very much waxing uh, and doing very well. Especially acupuncture is is doing really well. I, you know, I've been doing acupuncture for 25, 30 years, and I've never seen it as popular as it, as it is today. So, given all this. According to Said, research into the different modalities of complementary and alternative medicine in Arab regions is relatively small, and the current status of the know-how of Arab herbalists is limited. Currently, fewer than 200 to 250 out of 700 known medicinal plant species are still in use in Arab traditional medicine for the treatment of various diseases. So in other words, what he's saying is, if you go back in history, we have a history of using 700 plants, but right now we really only use about a third of those. And so that's pretty significant, you know, to have your traditional medicine shrink by a third. Um, I don't know if it's un unprecedented, but it seems pretty, pretty stark. 
So according to Al Rawi and his team in 2017, traditional Arabic medicine is the culmination of Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman, Roman, I can't say Greco-Roman, Chinese, Persian, and Ayurvedic theory. So it's mismatch, uh, mix match of all these things. And that makes a bit of sense given where it's located. It's, you know, it's relatively close to, to Greece. It's in the Mediterranean, which Greece and Italy are. So that's your Greco-Roman. Persia has uh, impact on the Mediterranean. And of course, the Ayurvedic and Chinese theories have been very widespread. So it makes sense that all of this is going to come together and at least influence, if not really bulk up, Arab traditional medicines. With this as a background, today we discuss Cleom Arabica, an obscure Arabic medicinal herb with limited information available. But we will learn about this herb, see if it is available to herbalists in other cultures, as well as its usefulness. So we're going to start that journey right now. So Cleom Arabica comes from family. So this is interesting. There's two families. We're going to explain why there's, there's two of them here. One is Cleomassier, which is just Cleom. Um, Massier is family of Cleom, basically, is what that means. Or Caparadossier. Uh, Cap we're going to explain what that is. That's an interesting family as well. And we're going to explain why there might be a controversy, whether or not the controversy has been dealt with at this point. The medicinal part of this plant seems to be the entire plant. Again, Hard to get a lot of information on this, but the one traditional uh, passage that I found said, boil the entire plant. We're going to talk about that in a minute in just preparation. So, entire plant. Other names for it is just Cleome. I would be a little bit cautious to just use Cleome. There's a lots, lots of species that are very different than Cleome arabica. I, in Arabic, it is, uh, um, again, my pronunciation, I apologize, Athena or Ephaena. And then the kind of common name for this is Moroccan spider flower. And the, and the Cleome uh, plant is basically spider plants. That's the majority of them. There are quite a few alternative species names. Uh, you know, when I look this up, lots of synonyms to Cleome arabica, which more than one place I've read, that is the correct name. So Cleome arabica is the correct name for this species. But you might see it as Cleom Ashersonina Fund, uh, Cleom Hexandra Pois, Cleom Hexandra Pois X Stud, Cleom Siliquaria RBR, I don't know what that means, Cleom Trinervia Fresen. So those are all potential uh, species under. Cleome as the genus, but also you might see sil Siliquaria arabica and uh, synaps synapistrum, synapistrum lenatum moinch. So those are other species names that you might see for this. These are synonyms. So again, it depends on the source that you get. Though I got to say, most of the sources I've seen, but I was searching for Cleome arabica, most of the sources that I came across would list these as alternative species names, but not, uh, you know, like if I went and looked up any one of these species names, it really, more often than not, it referred me back to Cleoma arabica. So I think it's there. I think it's okay if you do a Cleoma arabica and you're good. Dosing for the syrup, I couldn't find it anywhere. Most of the, the studies and everything were, were really, um, you know, about extracts. So that doesn't tell me much about dosing of a traditional. And the traditional was like, you know, use the whole plant. So maybe one plant, but if you look at it, it's a spider plant. So there's lots, it grows out. So I don't know if they mean one branch or the whole, whole giant plant. I'm not sure. Uh, other parts said, you know, it's grilled and it just didn't describe specific dosing. So it's hard to come by dosing on this one. So let's talk about that um, Caparaceae family. And that is the caper family. So you can see that Caparaceae, so capers. And if you're familiar with capers, they're very delicious, especially with some lots and cream cheese on a bagel. There are about 33 genera and 700 species in this family of Caparaceae. It is very close and sometimes included in the Brassicaceae uh, or the mustard family. Brassicaceae or the mustard family. Cleom and several related genera are closely related to members of the Brassicaceae as well. So in particular, the Cleomes 
are closer to this um, Brassicaceae, even if some other plants under the Caparaceae are similar as well. I'm getting very confusing here, I'm sure. So basically, the Cleome family are sometimes considered a subfamily of Brassiaceae. And in this case, subfamily is called uh, Chlamydiae, Chlamydiae, or put into an entire family of its own, which is called Cleomaceae. So in that case, I think they're talking about um, Brassicaceae as more of an order than a family. So remember, it goes in the hierarchy. There's species from the low to high, species, genus, family, and then order. And I think Brassiaceae can be an order and can be a family. So I'm thinking what they're saying here is that there's a family underneath it, which is Cleomaceae. So that is that confusion as to whether it's Caparaceae or Cleomaceae as a family. So sometimes considered a, a family on its own, which is Cleomaceae and not part of the Caparaceae family. The Cleomaceae are a small family of flowering plants in the order of Brassicalis. So this is the order of, uh, so that's, you know, uh, Brassicaceae is the family, Brassicalis is the order, uh, comprising about 300 species in 10 genera or about 150 species in 17 genera, depending on how you do it. Now, here to me is the reason why it's probably the correct family is Cleomaceae. These genera were previously included in the family Caparaceae, but were made into a distinct family when DNA evidence suggested the genera included in it are more closely related to the Brassiaceae than they are to the Caparaceae. So, what does that mean? That means that uh, at least, you know, some of this is confusing, some of this is not clear cut, and we always have to take what they say with a, a grain of salt, but at least one source that I came in, and, and, and you have to be careful with these sources. Some sources I have are a year old. I mean, a lot, I found papers, 2021 papers, so, you know, less than a year old. Uh, and some of them are 10, 15, 20 years old or older. And so these things change, especially as we do DNA testing and on it and what have you. But it sounds like the more recent evidence when you look at the DNA is that this, this species, Cleoma arabica, should be in a, a family that is called Cleomaceae. And that is different than the Caparaceae family. Now, you will still find stuff in the reason why I put Caparaceae or Cleomaceae as the family is because older things are saying Caparaceae and I think newer ones are saying Cleomaceae. So I think technically right now we should say it's part of the Cleomaceae family. All right, that's enough with that Latin, please. <laughs> they are mostly annuals and have glands, which is, is interesting for a plant. All right, so let's get into the actual Cleoma, back to the Cleoma arabica. First documentation of this plant is difficult to determine basically because there isn't a lot of information out there, though it or at least its genus may have been described by Linnaeus in the 18th century. So Linnaeus, if you're not familiar with him, super important, especially with classification of animals and, and plants. And so 18th century, 1700s, um, he described something uh, that sounds like the genus that we're talking about. Take it with a bit of a grain of salt, but I think that's probably our, our best bet right now for when it was first described, at least in the West. Its primary natural distribution is northern Africa and into the Arabian Peninsula. And it is, as I mentioned earlier, an annual. And it has these beautiful red flowers. And, and they have like these like yellow, black, and they look like eyes in the middle. They're, it's a beautiful plant. Um, and uh, yeah, you can look that up. Easy to see. I don't have a picture because I, I couldn't figure out the copyright issues with the pictures. So um, that was the reason why I don't have a beautiful picture of these red flowers. So traditional uses. I was able to find out some traditional uses from it from multiple sources. Um, I take most of these with a grain of salt, especially this first one. Uh, traditional uses of Clima Arabica include prevention of inflammation, analgesia, analgesic, it is analgesic, anti-cancer, and anti-diabetic. And the reason why I, I do that is that was the preamble of one of the papers. And so it's very much in scientific terms as opposed to traditional terms. And so um, I think it does all those things and it's probably used for those things traditionally, but they're not called those things traditionally. And cancer, anti-cancer, you don't usually see 
uh, traditional uses of anti-cancer because you have to live long enough for you to have cancer in the first place, which is a difficult thing in the past. So uh, Cleefe and his team in 2021 mentions its traditional and folk uses are to treat diabetes, rheumatism, colic, pain, and digestive disorders. Oh, colic and pain and digestive disorders. So those are not colicky pain, but colic and then pain as a thing. Uh, uh, Abdid El-Gawad and his team in 2021 agrees with most of these and adds the treatment of scabies. So scabies, if you're not familiar with that, are really nasty bugs. Uh, they're, they're like ticks and they get under your skin and lay eggs and get these lines as they crawl under your skin and those lines are from the uh, poop of it it's just they're gross and uh, quite endemic in, in many areas of the world so if you have a treatment for it that's great uh, Tigreen and and I think her team in 2013 describes its use for kidney and back problems traditionally and male virility so it says it, it has good use for for male virility and we'll see some scientific papers coming up that kind of support that use as well. So preparations for this, uh, leveling in, in 1998, that's the, that one little paragraph that started this whole thing, states that the herb is cooked in water and applied to a wound to prevent inflammation. So he's really talking about you know, anti-inflammatory, possibly also analgesic to help the pain of the wound and and all that. So that's Leveling's uh, preparation. Uh, Tigreen uh, discusses using the whole dried plant, powdered, and then added to milk for quote-unquote good fattening food. They also stated the grilled leaves are mixed with food during cooking for kidney and back issues and male virility. So there's that male virility. When we start to look at the science of this herb, the articles use both water and alcohol extracts to, to look at the properties. So at some point, you know, there's extractions happening here. Of course, if it's a water extract, it's probably in the realm of a, of a Chinese tincture. And if it's an, I mean, excuse me, a Chinese decoction. And if it's an alcohol extract, it's more of a Chinese tincture as well. And so it uh, makes sense. We use both of those. They're probably using stronger extracts than we would normally do for medicine when they're, they're doing them for research generally, but who knows? So what about Chinese medicine in Cleum Arabica? So looking through, I went through all my books, doing web searches. There are no obvious correlations with Chinese medicine in Cleum Arabica. I spent a lot of time on this, even though I doubted there was going to be much uh, help, anything out there. However, that doesn't stop me from trying to give it my best. And it is just a guess. I am not an expert at this. And uh, honestly, I don't feel like I know enough about Cleum Arabica uh, to be really good at it. But just based on some of its traditional functions of the herb, I would posit that it enters the spleen due to its digestive and anti-diabetic effects and the liver due to its analgesic and anti-inflammatory effects and is cooling due to its anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory effects. So that, that's where it goes. So it enters the spleen and liver and is cool in nature. That would be my first stab at it. Its functions, uh, you know, looking at its traditional functions, its functions would probably include moving the blood, because uh, that'll help the, that's analgesic in a Chinese medical sense. Uh, strengthening the spleen chi, that would help its, its digestion and, and uh, diabetes, diabe anti-diabetic effects, and potentially dispersing wind heat B. If it's cooling, it's gonna you know, uh, treat heat, and dispersing wind heat B or, or um, obstruction uh, syndrome, obstruction syndrome, uh, because it's good for rheumatism. Uh, and rheumatism and some and pain and analgesia and all that often is from um, B syndrome or obstruction syndrome. And so um, I suspect that there might be a, a little bit of wind dispersing aspect in with this herb as well. So those are my guesses. Uh, again, didn't ponder it for days and weeks or anything like that. This is my first shot at it. And so I'm definitely open for, for other options, other thoughts on this, and we can go from there. Uh, but that would be my first stab at what are the Western, uh, I mean, the Chinese medical uh, functions of this herb, Cleum Arabica. 
so uh, you know, usually I will talk about comparisons of this herb versus other herbs and why you might choose this one over another one or other herbs that might work similarly. I was not able to determine any comparable herbs in this. It's just like, you know, usually you say, when you look up studies, you look up some, you know, this herb is like XYZ herb and it does similar things, but it's different this way. You see that all the time in, in scientific studies and in the books and everything. I just couldn't come up with any of that. So I don't really have a whole bunch of comparable herbs or any other herbs to talk about and say, hey, this is when you use this herb versus that herb, which we're going to find out in the, in the end of the day, probably doesn't matter all that much, um, but I'd love to have some comparisons just to wrap my head around exactly how this herb works. So let's talk about biomedical indications. We've already discussed this herb's possible role in being anti-inflammatory, analgesic, anti-cancer, and anti-diabetic. The potential for antimicrobial is also mentioned in a paper or two when discussing the entire genus of Cleome, but not necessarily in this specific species of Cleome arabica. So I, I'm not sure if it's antimicrobial or not. None of the science papers that were looking at its effects actually looked at antimicrobial effects. And if you look at scabies, scabies is an insect, so it's not considered a microbe. So it wouldn't really fall under that. It might be anti-insectoid. Um, don't have a problem with that given that, that uh, previous traditional use to treat scabies. But um, I'm not sure about antimicrobial in this case. We're always looking for antimicrobial herbs. I don't know if this is one of the stronger ones for that. So what does the science say? So uh, this is an important one. So given the currently obscure nature of this herb, there aren't many science articles. So normally I am, I have a, a pretty high standard of, of scientific evidence. Uh, and, and in this case, those that are available are not systematic reviews, which is the strongest evidence, and of lower evidence quality. So I, I'm including them here where I probably wouldn't normally include them in a podcast, but I want to clear that this is really low-level research, and, and let's talk about what that means. So when I look at research, the first question I ask when looking at a study is what type of study is the research employing? And there's lots of different studies, types of studies, and there's lots of different ways to break them down, and it can get really complicated. You need a, a degree to figure out all the different kinds of studies and the positives and negatives of all that. But there is a hierarchy of types of clinical research. When it comes to clinical research, there's this whole school of thought called evidence-based medicine, which is now morphing into evidence-based practice. And it's how do you take evidence, scientific evidence, and apply it to your patients in front of you. That's the idea behind EBM or EBP, so evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice. And so there's a hierarchy there. And at the very bottom of this hierarchy is research that may show the possibility of clinical usefulness, but does not show any actual clinical usefulness. Because the only thing that it shows actual clinical usefulness is it doing something to human beings. And if it's not, if a study doesn't show it doing, a, a, a doing something positive to human beings, it is not actual clinical usefulness, but it might show the possibility of that. So let's talk about that. The lowest end of this, that's what we're talking about here, is in vitro and animal research. In vitro literally means in glass. And so what that refers to is research done in the laboratory and does not involve a live human or animal. So it's not live at all. If it does involve a live human or animal, then we're talking about a type of research called in vivo, which means in life. And again, in vivo may or may not be clinically useful. It's always pointing to clinical usefulness, as is the in vivo, in vitro, but it ain't proven nothing. So animal research may or may not apply to humans and is likewise of low use clinically. So just because a substance does something in a rat or a monkey or a dog does not mean it's going to do the same thing in humans. And we've seen this time and time and time again with the application of the scientific method is that something that sounds promising in a rat, when we go to test it in monkeys, it doesn't work, or we go to test it in humans, it does work in monkeys, but then we test it in humans and it doesn't work in the same way. So it just, it's an in indication that further research may be useful and to see if it's going to be helping in, in humans, but it is not an indication that it is clinically useful. I, I got into a big, uh, I, one of my, uh, my uh, continuing education units is on uh, an evidence-based medical approach to cannabis. And I just went in and I talked about this hierarchy and I, I talked about how important all the right evidence is. And someone just 
blistered me after it and just said, you just, you know, you said it didn't do this and it didn't do that. And I have all this evidence to show that it does. And she sent it all to me and it was all in rats. And I'm like, this is irrelevant to human beings. Just because it works in rats doesn't mean it works in humans. So while in vivo and animal research may both be very important research and lead to profound clinical interventions, most drug research will start at this level, by themselves, they show very little effectiveness in humans. So you can't say, it worked in a rat, therefore I'm going to give it to a human and it's going to have the same effect. Impossible for you to say, and not effective and not good thinking for clinical practice. All right, so that's the lowest end of research. Next up in the hierarchy, there's individual uh, case studies. There's small group case studies showing some clinical effect of an intervention in one or a handful of cases. So, hey, this, for whatever reason, was done in one person. Maybe the person did it by mistake. Maybe they did it without talking to a doctor, whatever it is. And it had a positive effect. Here you go. Here's a good case study. So that's starting to get in humans some human evidence. Not strong. It's only one person or five people or ten people. Very small number. But it's something. It's clinical. It's something. And, but still relatively low, but better than the animal or the in vitro. And as the hierarchy climbs up the evidence ladder, it looks at types of research like case control and cohort studies. Again, now we're starting to get into more uh, forward-thinking application of, of uh, study design. And then, the, then there are systematic reviews of multiple of these types of studies. And systematic review, so the most respected form of research is a randomly controlled trial. Uh, so that means they're, they're, they, people are put into different cohorts randomly. No one knows which cohort they're actually in. There's a control cohort, which means nothing's really happening to them. And then there's an intervention cohort, at least one intervention cohort. And so you can compare the two to see if the intervention cohort is actually doing better than the, the non-intervention or the control cohort is doing. And that's considered, if well-designed and large enough, that's considered the highest level of research there is out there. It's not useful for everything. Like, it's really, I do not believe it's possible to do a randomly controlled trial, though I have a few ideas, um, that you can do a randomly controlled trial with acupuncture. Even though they try and you hear about sham acupuncture, more often than not, it's not sham acupuncture. That's a whole nother, something a little different. So, but the best evidence of all, of all of this is a systematic review of many randomly controlled trials. That is the best evidence. So you've done several relatively large randomly controlled trials, and now we can pull that information all together in a systematic way and give a review of all those randomly controlled trials. And then we start to see, um, we start to tease out what may or may not be the actual truth about that. So that's the hierarchy. That's the way we want to do it. The reason why I'm going into this is because there is no evidence above that lowest level of evidence for Cleoma arabica. Again, interesting, can show us some possibilities, and can definitely point us to where we want to do, how we want to develop some, some trials going forward. But in and of itself, not proving anything in human beings. So let's see what, we, what those kind of studies look like. So one thorough in vitro study, so that's it, that in glass study, low level, uh, shows the essential oil derived from this herb has strong antioxidant potential, significant anti-inflammatory action using similar mechanisms as NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Actually, one of the things they use it against was ibuprofen and, endo, and another one was endomethacin, which is stronger than ibuprofen. Both of those are NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And, it, and they've determined that it probably uses the same sort of mechanism um, with that as well. Uh, which is uh, COX inhibition or cyclooxygenase inhibition. So very similar to NSAIDs. So that's really interesting information. And it also showed, that study also showed substantial allelopathic inhibitory activity. So that's really interesting. What that means, that allelopathic inhibitory activity means it is useful in stopping mutations in genes and potentially could play a role in anti-cancer treatment. So that's really interesting. So allelo, alleles are genes. That's a different term, a more scientific term for a gene. Allelopathic, which means gene diseases, uh, and it inhibits those gene diseases. So that's, where that's what allelopathic inhibitory activity means. So it's, it prevents damage to the genes is basically what, what we're saying here. 
So that was really cool. And those effects are really interesting and useful to know about. The question becomes, is that, the, do we have the same effects outside of the in vitro environment, the in glass environment, does it actually happen in humans? And we don't know the answer to that. This study doesn't show that. So it's interesting. I'd love to do a study that showed if it has that, the same effects in humans or not. But those studies are usually more expensive and more difficult to do. So you do these in vitro studies first. Interesting in evidence, not clinical evidence, though. So the other one, uh, another really good one is um, tigrine, also shows anti-cancer properties through different mechanisms of action than the allelopathic inhibitory activity, as mentioned in the other one. But it was, and it was in vivo, but it was an animal study. It was in rats. So again, not necessarily applicable, but a step closer to humans, still lowest level of evidence, but a step closer to humans. Another study by Cleefe in 2021 and his team uh, using both in vivo and animal experimentation showed substantial anti-inflammatory and anti-nociceptive activities. Anti-nociceptive means anti-pain. Um, and, and when we say nociceptive, what we're really talking about, anti-nociceptive, is we're talking about the nerve, uh, the pain nerves. So it's anti-pain nerve activities. So that's useful, but again, animal experimentation, not necessarily clinically useful. In a rat study, uh, Amasayev and Edukes in 2020 exhibited a significant antihyperglycemic effect. So in other words, good for um, lowering the sugar levels in the blood, the glucose levels in the blood. So that's good for anti-diabetics. Same team in 2021 showed anti-dyslipidemic effects in diabetic rats, possibly through antioxidant activity. So um, not only does it in, in rats at least, lower the, the sugar levels, but it's anti-dyslipidemic, which means that it lowers the cholesterol levels as well and the triglyceride levels as well. Lowers the bad cholesterol, may or may not, we don't, I didn't read it thoroughly enough to see that it may or not um, uh, lower or raise the, the good cholesterol, but it definitely will help uh, lower the bad cholesterol and, and potentially triglycerides. So that's really Again, super interesting if we can make that, show that that, that worked in, in humans, that would be really powerful information. Finally, another study by uh, Bublata and his team in 2021 showed a significant increase in sexual activity when the rats were given an alcohol extract of Cleomarabica. So that's going back to that malvirility aspect of it. And apparently it does have some sexual stuff. Um, Traditional use, so therefore that might be some good evidence for, for humans. It's not a human trial, so uh, take it with a grain of salt, but that's interesting. All right. Let's talk about the contents of this herb. As usual, as in most herbs, Cleoma arabica has several components that might be pharmacologically useful. And as usual, they fall into broad categories of constituents, such as essential oils and sesquiterpenes. The major constituents of this herb include caryophylline oxide, and I have percentages here, so that's about 36%. And this is 36% of the extract, and, and it was a, um, they were using a, a grass, a, a gas chrom chromatograph with um, infrared spectra, I believe is what they use. So this is what they took out of it. So it's not 36% of the plant, it's 36% of this extract. So caryophylline oxide, Hexahydrofarnesyl acetone, set, uh, about 8%. Aloaromadendrine epoxide, about 6%. Myrtonyl acetate, about six, a little less than 6%. Isohyobunone, 4.5%. Shiobunol, 4.2%, 4.19%. And transcaryophylline, 3.45% was what they found. Now, you know, when you look at extracts and percentages of this, every plant, depending on how it's grown up and the environment and the rainfall for that year and whatever else, will have these have differences in these constituents. But the, the, the ratios are often similar, so useful. So caryophylline oxide is the big major constituent that we see in the extract. There was one paper that described a new steroid that acted as a, quote, powerful antioxidant. Uh, and this was written by, uh, in 2010 by Jaredane. However, it was later retracted in 2017. So uh, you look at the retraction, uh, I, I, it looks like they, the techniques they use in their, in, their, 
and their uh, constituents weren't weren't really matching up. So let's forget that happens in science. Uh, not good for your career, but you know at least we know that it's not useful. So I mentioned um, sesquiterpenoids or uh, sesquiterpenes um, for a touch here. Let's just talk briefly about what those are. We've got a few minutes. These are chemical structures derived from three isoprene units. Uh, we, the reason why I like talking about these sesquiterpenoids is I'm learning a little bit about pharmacognosy as we go through these. That's, uh, and, and I'm finding a lot of the helpful constituents of verbs fall under this rubric of sesquiterpenoids. And when I look at the list of ses sesquiterpenoids, there's some very interesting uh, main ingredients of herbs that are sesquiterpenoids. So I'll take a little bit of a, a talk here. So it's chemical structures derived from three isoprene units. An isoprene is a is 2-methylbuta-1,3-diene. Uh, that is the actual chemical that we're talking about. And it is five carbon atoms with eight hydrogen atoms. There are a wide variety of sesquiterpenoids, including linear, so it's just linear string of them, and one, two, or three ring or cyclic framework. So they can also um, get into uh, six carbon rings, sometimes five carbon rings as well. There are numerous useful medicinal chemicals that fall into these structures, and that's why I wanted to just mention them briefly, what a sesquiterpenoid is. Okay. Let's move it on. We're getting towards the end here. So drug-herb interactions, there does not appear to be any known drug-herb interactions. I did scholarly searches for this herb and direct interactions with drugs, as well as cytochrome P450 and P glycoproteins, which are major targets for drug-herb interactions. And, and none of them, there weren't any clear interactions that I could see on a, on a scholarly search. So I'm not going to say there aren't drug-herb interactions. I think what this is more indicative of is that uh, the, we usually... Um, what I'll do is I'll see studies that say, oh, uh, cytochrome P450 interactions with XYZ herb, and then it will go through, I'll read it, and I'll say there were no interactions, but there was nothing like this. I don't even think they've looked at um, whether or not there's these interactions, which just indicates that a lot more research needs to happen on drug herb interactions in this herb. So concerns, uh, preliminary measures of toxicity, primarily LD50, which is sort of a universal measurement of toxicity, demonstrate a very safe profile for consuming this herb. In other words, toxic effects do not occur until way more of this herb is consumed than is generally possible. So it's a fairly safe herb. As for most of the information about this herb, a lot more research needs to be undertaken to prove its effects and complete safety profile. I was, I was excited, honestly, when I was going through this, and I... And I came up with um, what, you know, these, a couple, uh, a couple uh, uh, papers and, and they said phototoxicity. I'm like, cool. Phototoxicity means that there's light issues and it, it's, you know, you go out and you get a sunburn or whatever. I'm like, oh, that'll be a great one for the concerns. And then when I started to write this concern, I reread it and it wasn't phototoxicity, it was phytotoxicity, which means it's toxic to certain plants, which means it can be useful for insecticides and things like that, which isn't very relevant for us as a concern here. So I was a little disappointed that it wasn't phototoxic and that it was actually more phytotoxic than phototoxic. But there you go. And it, was, it, it wasn't very phytotoxic either. So just one of those studies that said, is there phytotoxicity here? All right, so that's our concerns. What are our conclusions about this herb? Well, and there we are. An interesting herb with some really interesting possible effects and uses. I find the potential here very interesting. Of course, there's a lot more research that needs to be done, as if I haven't said that 20 times already in this podcast. Even at that, there are no commercially available forms of this herb that I can find. Usually when I put an herb into Google, I'll find this pill or that pill or this extract or even just raw herbs or something, but nothing came up on this herb. So I don't think you can get this commercially. I did find there were some beautiful Cleum plant seeds for sale, but I didn't see any Cleum arabica seeds readily available. So uh, Cleums might be very pretty uh, plants, and this is a pretty plant in a lot of ways. It's a desert plant, so I don't know if it would be very readily to be uh, grown here in the United States, in most parts of the United States, but I did not see any of the seeds anyway. So I, I just, I don't see where this is commercial, uh, that is used commercially at any, in any way at this point. So this herb should be in the category 
of let's keep an eye on it as it could become interesting in the future, but is probably not useful outside of its natural habitat and traditional uses at this point. So this is the first herb I've really come to that conclusion. Most of the time I can say, oh, it does this and it could be useful. I'm not sure I buy this, but it's an interesting thing, all that sort of stuff. And you can buy it here. And this is the first herb I can't find and can't buy, can't, can't see, but it's an interesting herb and it showed us some very interesting properties of herbs. And so that's Cleom Arabica. I'd like to really thank you for, for hanging out. We are 100% on time, perfectly on time. Just want to remind you, if you want to help support uh, this podcast, when you buy from Amazon, please use the banner ad on our homepage at spurbsherbs.com. You can always get in touch with me at drgreg at spurbsherbs.com or at our website, spurbsherbs.com, www.spurbsherbs.com. Remember, that's S-P-E-R-B-S. H-E-R-B-S dot com. And I just want to thank you very, very much. Our next couple slides here are actually going to be on the bibliography. As usual, I have a very long bibliography, which you can find at our, uh, at our website as well. Sometimes it takes us a little bit to get it up there, but it always gets up there. So thank you very much. really appreciate you hanging in there. And thank you. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins. Roger Campbell.